Hail to the king, baby. It's Duke Nukem, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 31 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As always, I'm your host, Joe. I am back with you once again for the 31st time to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. Things have been a little bit busy, which is why the show is a little bit uh, a little bit late. This week, uh, on the weekend, I was uh, away in uh, Montreal, the old hometown, my wife had to go down for a uh, for a, a wedding shower. That's what it was. My cousin's wedding shower. Interestingly, that she's my cousin, but my wife has to go to her wedding shower. Ha ha ha. But uh, yeah, and at the same time, we helped uh, we helped my sister in law move uh, the last of her stuff back from uh, from Montreal to here to Toronto, where she is originally from. And yeah, so it was a busy weekend. Lots of lifting and uh, soreness, and a little bit of a couple of beers. Nice evening out at the bar. Things like that, so lots of fun. Sadly, uh, the weather for the rest of the week uh, up until today is it hasn't been all that great. It's been kind of rainy here in Toronto, uh, a little bit cold. Makes you wonder why. I think we're we're basically halfway through June, and uh, it doesn't feel a stitch like summer yet. But not much we can do about the weather. Let's get on to the news. So obviously the big thing in the news that I'm not really going to talk about in detail is that it is both E3 week and Apple's WWDC, Worldwide Developer Conference, uh, week. So we saw a whole bunch of announcements. Uh, both Sony and Microsoft gave uh, gave some good E3 keynotes where we learned more about the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One. Uh, we saw some interesting games from, uh, from both of those platforms. Um, I'm currently a 360 owner. I haven't really played a game on it in quite a while. I think the last game that I really bought for uh, for my 360 was uh, Fallout New Vegas, which I haven't quite gotten through yet. But, uh, you know, I think this this generation, I'm, I'm not in a rush, I think, to get a console just because there's so much stuff on my PC and, you know, with Steam and GOG and all these indie games and mid-tier games and some bigger titles coming out uh, for PC, I may just stick to that. But uh, I think I'm going to flip uh, for this generation and probably roll over to a, to a PS4. It just seems like it's a more open platform. Uh, you know, there's going to be a lot less restrictions, interesting games. It doesn't have this weird all is online checking in game license thing, which frankly doesn't really bug me all that much. But I figure if, you know, one console is going to harass me all the time or always kind of connect to some home server and tell everyone what's going on and blah, blah, blah. And one of them isn't, I'll go with the one that isn't. Uh, WWDC, you know, we heard some stuff about uh, about iOS 7 and new Macs. I mean, I record this show on my MacBook Pro, so it'll be nice to see what, uh, to get my hands on that new version of OS 10 and, uh, and all that. But obviously all that news being as big as it is doesn't have anything to do with, uh, with the podcast, really. So let's get into some more relevant news. Um, in the past few weeks since uh since last we spoke uh tim schaefer's double fine has launched its second kickstarter campaign for a game called massive chalice uh, it promises to be a tactical strategy game reminiscent of games like XCOM, final fantasy tactics and fire emblem with uh we're told a hint of kind of the uh 
family politics and generational stuff from uh, something like Game of Thrones. Uh, you you fight enemies through time and you manage your heroes uh, as they age. And, uh, you know, you can kind of keep fighting those heroes until they get old and, and pass on. Or you can pull them back from the front to help uh, sire and develop future generations of warriors. Uh, the game is being designed by Brad Muir. I believe it's Brad Muir. Uh, he's the creator of Iron Brigade. Uh, seems very interesting. They've already broken their $725,000 goal with uh, with 15 days to go. But, uh, you know, if you're still interested, as I always say, check out the Kickstarter, see what there is to see, and uh, and make your own decision as to whether or not Massive Chalice deserves uh, deserves your money and deserves as much money as uh, as Double Find Adventure did. Second, somewhat related to uh, to the main topic of the show that we're going to be talking about, it appears that a remake of 1997's Shadow Warrior is coming out in the fall of this year, direct from our friends at 3D Realms, who we're going to discuss quite extensively. Uh, the game is supposedly being updated for uh, the modern gaming market while still maintaining the uniqueness and style and, you know, base gameplay tropes of the original Shadow Warrior. So you can check out a teaser trailer for that at shadowwarrior.com, and I'll also link a joystick article where they uh, where they go into a bit more depth and detail as to what uh, the Shadow Warrior guys at 3D Realms will be doing. Uh, on a little tangent in mobile gaming news, uh, I've been totally obsessed with a fun little match three game called Scurvy Scallywags. Now, the reason I bring this up is not just because this is the game that I play while I'm in the bathroom. Uh, the game is put out by Ron Gilbert, formerly of LucasArts and uh, obviously of Monkey Island fame. So Scurvy Scallywags is a, is a pirate-based uh, match three game. So you're a pirate and you go across uh, lands and you try and you defeat enemies in uh, in in this kind of match three setup, kind of like bejeweled or whatever, but it's a little more complicated than that. The pieces move in different directions. Uh, you have to match certain things with certain other things. There's attack power, stats, pirate ships, side quests. It's it's really 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 interesting. I have a link here to the uh, to the iTunes store. I think it may be on Android. I, I will double check that. And if there is a uh, a link on uh, on the Play Store, or something like that. I will put that in the show notes right next to the uh, the link on uh, to the to the iTunes Store. Then again, I may also just link the game site, and everything will be there. Finally, in the news, uh, if we all remember, a couple of uh, must be a couple months ago by now, uh, the closing of THQ. It appears that uh, as a result of the, the the closing down of THQ, that Interplay has reacquired the rights to Descent Free Space. Now, I talked about Free Space a little bit back in the uh, in the Descent episode, but uh, Descent Free Space is something that deserves a show all its own. It's basically a separate game series, aside from the fact that it's called Descent. Uh, with the rights to Descent Free Space back in Interplay's hands, who knows, maybe we will see a, a new Free Space space sim. Uh, might be something to look out for if I hear anything out of the press or out of Interplay themselves. I will, as always, keep you guys in the loop. All right, before we get to the main topic for the day, we have a quick email from the good friend of the show, BJ. So BJ writes, I hate to do this, but I must correct you on at least the creators of Pitfall and Dragon's Lair. 
The creator of Pitfall is David Crane. Well, the Dragons, their creators are Don Bluth, Gary Goldman, and Rick Dyer. Also, I have a request for you, and technically both of these games count because they include Sam and Max, a series you covered before, Poker Night at the Inventory, and the recently released Poker Night 2. Thanks, Joe, and keep up the good work. Well, thank you, BJ. Thanks for uh, for that correction. The, those those names. Just last time I was here sitting at my desk talking uh, talking into the into the microphone, they just totally escaped me. I definitely knew about uh, about Don Bluth. And, uh, and David Crane, the other two from Dragon's Lair, they don't really ring a bell, but uh, both b- both these games were a little bit before uh, before my time. So thanks for pointing them out. They are definitely icons in the, in the, in the history of gaming, and uh, you know I'm I'm sure they will feature very prominently in that movie project where uh, where I was referring to them. As for Poker Night, hey, I'll cover a game. I've covered modern games before. These do have. Uh, have some references back to the games that uh, that I talk about here. I've heard a lot of other a lot of game reviewers or maybe some game reviewers, some other gaming podcasts talk about Poker Night. Say it's really really great. I've heard uh, Brock Sampson from uh, what is Adventure Brothers is in. Uh, I believe it's Poker Night Two, and he's hilarious. I, I'm watching. I'm going through. I think I'm in season two of Adventure Brothers right now, and it is hilarious. So hey, another thing to add to the list. I I, I love I love variety. So that's it for emails for now. We're going to pick up a couple more of them later on in the show. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Okay, so let's get down to it. Duke Nukem is a series of four games. The first two games were developed and published by Apogee. The third was developed and published by 3D Realms. And finally, and I do mean finally... The fourth was developed by a bunch of people, but ultimately ended up being finished by Gearbox Software and published by 2K Games. Uh, I'll go through this in in two or three parts, starting with the first two games. Uh, The first game in the series, Duke Nukem, released in the year 1991. So let's talk genre. The first two games in the series are platformers. Now, I'm pretty sure this is not a genre we've covered before. Platformers are a fairly straightforward genre. They generally have you controlling a character from a third-person side view. That character is required to complete certain tasks by traversing a map or a level. To do this, they must usually jump over obstacles onto suspended platforms. The player needs to control their jumps to avoid missing landings on adjacent platforms. Uh, They have to avoid obstacles like spiked or bottomless pits or other damaging placements like that. Missing jumps may result in anything from simply having to return to the jump-off point to retry, all the way to taking damage or even instantly losing life. Either a life or taking damage, something, or permadeath, or whatever the uh, the trope of the particular platformer is. Uh, Platformer levels are also rife with enemies. Depending on the game, your character may be equipped with weapons or they may not. Most platformers do offer temporary and permanent upgrades to weapons in addition to other power-ups like added run speed, additional hit points, and temporary invincibility. Platformers are sort of, uh, I guess you could say, the, uh, the primordial video game. When you ask someone to explain what a video game is, when you ask someone, I, I feel, today, who is not a gamer, uh, this is likely the type of game they describe. 
platformers were a mainstay on uh, on the consoles of the 80s and 90s. Like we discussed back in the Wolfenstein 3D episode, PCs of that same time period didn't have the horsepower or the dedicated hardware to do things like parallax scrolling, that's having the background move across the screen at a slower rate than the foreground, uh, and frankly, they didn't have enough horsepower to just animate the scenes fast enough to make platformer-type gameplay fun and compelling. So let's go through our sections for the original Duke Nukem. Let's talk story. Like other Apogee games of the time, Duke Nukem was distributed via the shareware model. Shareware equals episodes. So the backstory and episode plot lines are outlined on the game's hint sheet. It reads, In the near future, Dr. Proton, a brilliant nuclear physicist, goes berserk after a radiation accident and plans to wreak havoc to the world. In his secret underground fortress, Dr. Proton builds an army of high-technology robots, techbots, to help him complete his plan. Soon after, he takes control of a large American city and threatens to conquer the Earth. You play the title role in Duke Nukem, a superhero for our modern times. Duke is a humble sort of guy, and would much prefer to stay at home in his cool Los Angeles apartment and watch his soaps. But when the going gets tough, so does Duke. The CIA has hired Duke to be dropped into Proton's captured city and stop the madman from completing his outrageous plan. So begins episode one of the Duke Nukem trilogy. In episode two, Duke travels to Dr. Proton's moon base. And in the final episode, Duke chases Dr. Proton into Earth's future. So that's the story such as it is. There isn't much there, and there won't be there much there for the rest of the series either. Frankly, the language, the sentence structure, and the punctuation in the manual makes me think it was written by a 12-year-old. Anyways, that is Duke. Looks like cleanup on aisle four. So, time for some gameplay. Duke Nukem's gameplay is uh, as straightforward as you'd expect from an older platformer like this. The game is level-based. The objective of each level is to get from the start to the exit. Killing enemies not only gets them out of your hair, it also scores you points. Other ways to score points are by collecting various items strewn about the level, like footballs, flags, joysticks, discs, basically anything that isn't an enemy and that isn't tied down can either be collected or destroyed. Despite the game's seeming simplicity, a lot of items and surfaces in the game were actually destructible. Your main and only weapon in the game is Duke's atomic pistol. Uh, it fired green squiggly bolts in the direction that Duke is facing. So you can only fire left or right, there's no up, there's no down, there's no angles. If you want to shoot something higher than you, you need to jump and shoot. The pistol can be upgraded by picking up pistol power-ups. Initially, you can only fire a single bolt at a time, and have to wait for that bolt to hit something or exit the screen to fire again. Your first power-up allows for two bolts on the screen and upgrades to a total of five bolts. So one thing that was unique about Duke Nukem, despite, as I keep saying, its simplicity, was the level design. For a PC platformer, the game had pretty intuitive levels that could be cleared very quickly. There were multiple routes through the levels, and they were not only designed to be traversed horizontally, but vertically as well. While the levels are small, having the gameplay span the entire width and height of, uh, of the map did indeed make them feel quite big. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... 
All right, we're rolling through Duke Nukem one pretty uh, pretty quickly here. So let's talk a little bit about uh, about the technology behind this game. So the original Duke Nukem, as I keep saying, it was a fairly stra- straightforward platformer. Unlike Commander Keen that we've previously discussed in both the Wolfenstein and Doom shows, Duke Nukem didn't utilize the groundbreaking smooth scrolling technology that John Carmack had invented at id Software. Carmack's tech emulated the functionality of dedicated hardware that most 80s and 90s game consoles had. For example, the NES's PPU, or Picture Processing Unit, handled the generation of 240 lines of pixels needed to output to a standard NTSC or PAL television screen. Uh, The XTs and 286s of the time just couldn't compete with this dedicated hardware. So what was the solution? Well... Before John Carmack came onto the scene, the solution was to do what I don't I don't have an official name for it, but I guess we can call it block scrolling. So say you're moving your character to the left in a console game or a post Carmack PC platformer, the screen would smoothly scroll the game world left pixel by pixel. Uh, in the pre-Carmackian engine Duke One ran in, the screen wouldn't smoothly scroll. It would move in 8x8 blocks. In addition, the background would move at the same rate as the foreground. There is no parallax scrolling here. The controls were also fairly straightforward. Left and right arrows moved you left and right. Up allowed you to enter doors and control elevators. Control made you jump and alt fired your atomic pistol. That's it. That's all. Graphics were 320x200 EGA at 16 colors and definitely had a cartoony feel to them. Uh, There was no in-game music to speak of and only a few rudimentary PC speaker sound effects as we can hear right here. Beautiful sound, isn't it? You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, rolling right into dev stories. So now things are going to get a little, we're going to get into history. We're going to roll through Duke 1, Duke 2, and then, you know, we will, we'll, we'll, we'll go from, from there and kind of reset a little bit after we talk, uh, talk about Duke 2. So the story of Duke Nukem begins at Apogee Software. Now we've talked a little bit about Apogee and passing in the past, but this is the first game we've covered that was both developed and published by the company. So Apogee was founded by Scott Miller. Now, Scott was born in 1961 in Florida. His father was a NASA engineer who worked on both the Apollo and Gemini programs. This exposed him to computers at a very early age. Now, by 1975, he'd begun writing some small video games on a Wang 2200 computer. He claims that none of the games he wrote in those days were very good or even very complete. Now, some of the games he wrote were purchased by disc-based magazines such as IB Magazette and, of course, Softdisk, the company where the team that would later be known as id worked. Uh, for $500 to $1,000 per game, he would sell sole distribution rights uh, to his creations to the magazines for a period of six months. After six months, the rights were returned to him and, uh, and he put his games on the shelf. After doing this for a little while, he realized he could still be making money from these previous titles. He legally owned the rights to them, so why not find a way to sell them himself? 
doing some research into marketing and, and the games industry of the time, he came across a model he found interesting. It was called shareware. The shareware model of the time was as simple as this. Software authors would write an application, utility, or game, and they put it out on BBSs for download. Potential users would download the fully functional software, trade it with their friends, etc., etc. If they liked the software, the expectation was that they would send the author some amount of money, usually something in the realm of $20 to $30. Of course, possession is nine-tenths of the law, so few people ever actually sent in any money. The more people Scott asked about shareware, the more people told him it'd get his name out there, but there's no way he should expect to make any money from it. He thought about it a bit, and he figured maybe they were doing this the wrong way. They were giving away the whole cow. Miller figured that if he only gave away a portion of his games and asked for payment in return for the full version, he might have something here. It turns out he did. Apogee Software was born. He released Kingdom of Craws, a roguelike maze game rendered in, uh, in a PC's text mode. In it, he advertised two more Craws games. If gamers sent in a check to Apogee, he would send out a disc containing the complete three-game series. So in his first year, Craws pulled in between eighty dollars to $100,000. The name of the company, Apogee, harkened back to his father's NASA days. He had known that Apogee meant the highest point in an orbit, and uh, he came across the word while flipping through a dictionary looking for interesting potential company names. He also liked the fact that the name started with A. Because of that, it would get top billing in any alphabetical listings. <laughs> Wasted. So, from 1987 to 1990, Apogee was a part-time job. His full-time job was as a tech industry writer. He authored a book and wrote computer columns for quite a few popular publications, including Compute and, uh, I believe, a weekly column in the Dallas Morning News. Uh, Scott says he was pulling in about $30,000 a year from this full-time gig. By 1990, though... He was making a few hundred thousand dollars a year from his game sales. The decision was kind of staring him in the face. He needed to work on Apogee full time. So he dove in and he quickly realized that uh, he was both at the limit of his programming ability and the limit of his code output. He needed some staff. He soon brought on some developers that he had met on BBSs through his shareware distribution kind of uh, gig. He also started corresponding with a small group at Softdisk who worked on a little project called Dangerous Dave that I've chatted again a little bit about on previous shows. This team would soon be known as id Software. About a year after he went out on his own, he brought on his old high school friend, George Broussard. George would go on to run the company as kind of the head game designer with Miller taking on more of the business side of things. However, in these early days, they were both still quite involved in game development. They, along with newly hired de developer Todd Replogle, or Replog, yeah, Replogle, I'll go with that. Uh, all three of them together, plus a, a couple of others, started to work on a slightly zany platformer featuring a wisecracking Schwarzenegger-like hero they named Duke Nukem. Replogle did the bulk of the programming with help from Miller. Miller designed the, the first 15 levels of the game, which, uh, which ended up being the, uh, the freely available first episode, and uh, Broussard worked on the art. The sound effects, as we heard before, were also handled 
by Scott Miller. So Duke Nukem released in July 1991 and was hugely successful in the shareware model. Episode 1, Shrapnel City, was released for free download or very cheap disc purchase. Episodes 2 and 3 were available via mail order. Duke Nukem sold around 60 to 70,000 copies. The release of Duke Nukem wasn't without controversy, though. Around the same time, you guys may remember a Saturday morning cartoon called Captain Planet. You know, you remember the group of racially diverse kids combined their powers to form a blue-skinned guardian of the Earth. Go planet. Blah, blah, blah. Well, that show, as sad and unfortunate as it was, looking back, uh, had a bad guy in it. And uh, that bad guy was named, guess what? Duke Nukem. So to avoid any legal issues, the 2.0 version of the Duke Nukem game had the spelling of Duke's last name changed to Nukem or Nukem. N-U-K-U-M, instead of the more familiar N-U-K-E-M. Eventually, though, and this does teach you that occasionally it does pay to talk to a lawyer before you freak out and do something, uh, they found out that Captain Planet's people had not actually registered or trademarked the Duke Nukem character's name. So Apogee did so and eventually changed the spelling back to uh, the spelling we know and love, N-U-K-E-M. It's time to kick ass and chew bubble gum, and I'm all out of gum. So this moves us forward to 1993 and Duke Nukem Part 2. So, story-wise, the first game started off in the future year of 1997. Well, it is now the future year of 1998, the year that I graduated from high school. Uh, One year after the events of the first game. So, we begin with an intro sequence where we see Duke being interviewed on a TV talk show. He's talking about his new book named Why I'm So Great, when he's suddenly captured by aliens. It turns out the aliens want to drain Duke's brain using their encephalo sucker and use his knowledge to formulate an attack on Earth. He is unceremoniously dumped into a cell where he quickly breaks free, gets his hands on a blaster, and has to fight his way to freedom. Duke 2 was a very noticeable upgrade from the first game. The graphics were upgraded to 256 color VGA, Sound Blaster digital effects, and MIDI music were added as well. Gameplay was also vastly upgraded. Duke can now climb ladders, cross chasms, hand over hand on ropes or rails, crouch, and shoot up and down. Each episode now also featured a final boss, and some missions have alternate objectives such as destroying tracking radar dishes. On top of his regular blaster... Temporary weapons upgrades can also be acquired. The laser and flamethrower can shoot through any obstacles, and the rocket launcher adds splash damage to Duke's arsenal. Other in-game buffs include cloaking devices and rapid fire. Uh, The bulk of the team remain the same with some noticeable additions. Uh, The game's story, such as it is, was written by Tom Hall, writer on many of id's games and one of the founding members of that company. In addition, The game's MIDI score was composed by Bobby Prince, who, again, we've talked about before. He did the music for both Wolfenstein 3D and Doom. So Duke Nukem 2 was also released via what had become known as the Apogee model. The first episode was free, with the other two available for purchase. Duke 2 required at least a 286, but a 386 was strongly recommended. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. 
So as early as 1994, work began on an ambitious project. Platformers were all well and good, but id's success with Wolf 3D, and more importantly, Doom, got the Apogee internal development team thinking that they should tackle an FPS game themselves. So back in 94, Apogee unofficially renamed itself 3D Realms, though the company's legal name remained Apogee. This was done to focus the company's reputation on their upcoming 3D titles. Since 3D games soon became the de facto standard for cutting-edge gaming, 3D Realms dropped a trade name Apogee by 1996 and officially became 3D Realms. So we find ourselves in Duke Nukem 3D. We've changed gears from a platformer to a first-person shooter. So genre-wise, of course, we've talked about first-person shooter games in the past. You control a character from a first-person view. That is, you are inside their body, looking out of their eyes. You generally have access to a variety of weapons and need to traverse levels to an exit point while avoiding or attacking enemies that come your way. While the first game had some manual-based backstory and the second Duke Nukem game had an intro sequence, Duke 3D dispenses with that kind of cruft. A small synopsis of the story can be found in the game's help section. Duke 3D takes place immediately after the events of Duke Nukem 2. Duke is returning to Earth on his space cruiser when he is shot down by an unknown enemy force. While Duke is sending a distress signal, he finds out aliens are attacking LA and have mutated the LAPD into pig-like monsters to do their bidding. Duke hits the eject button and drops into the fray. So in episode one, LA Meltdown, Duke fights his way through battle-ravaged LA. At a strip club, he's captured by pig cops, but escapes the alien-controlled penitentiary and tracks down the alien cruiser responsible for the invasion in the San Andreas Fault. After killing the first boss, the alien battle lord, Duke discovers that the aliens were capturing women and detonates the ship. Levels in, the, in episode one include places like a movie theater, a red light district, a prison, and a nuclear waste disposal facility. In episode two, Lunar Apocalypse, Duke journeys to space where he finds many of the captured women held in various incubators throughout space stations that had been conquered by the aliens. Uh, Duke reaches the alien mothership on the moon and kills an alien overlord. As Duke inspects the ship's computer, it's revealed that the plot to capture women was merely a ruse to distract him. Now, the aliens have already begun their attack on Earth. The levels in this episode consist mainly of things like space stations, uh, including a moon base. In episode 3, Shrapnel City, Duke battles the massive alien resistance through Los Angeles once more and kills the leader of the alien menace, the Cycloid Emperor. The game ends as Duke promises that after some R&R, he will be ready for more action, as an anonymous woman calls him back to bed. Uh, levels in the final episode include a sushi bar, movie set, a subway, and a hotel. I'm Duke Nukem, and I'm coming to get the rest of you alien bastards. Okay, time to talk gameplay for Duke Nukem 3D. So Duke 3D's gameplay is somewhat standard for, for first-person shooters as we know them today. In fact, all the tropes of FPS games that Doom did not implement were implemented in Duke Nukem 3D. Uh, for example, one very obvious thing in this game is that uh, Duke can jump and crouch. That was not uh, possible in Doom. 
So levels in, uh, in Duke 3D aren't all just straight running and gunning either. Early in episode one, Duke is captured by the LAPD. Uh, in the next level, we begin with Duke in an electric chair. If you don't move quickly, you die. All your accumulated weapons are also taken away. Uh, all you have is your foot for kicking. You can either find a hidden shotgun, or if you're not that clever, you can try and lure a guard into the area, kick him to death, and take his weapon. Not only are the settings of each level wildly different from a movie theater to a porn shop to a moon base, but uh, most levels are non-linear. That is, there's multiple ways to get to the end. I mean, this is something that has been a hallmark of the series. We talked about it a little bit earlier. The same thing way back in Duke Nukem 1. Well, Duke Nukem 3D, same thing. Now, you can blast your way right up the middle. You can cut through side buildings. You can crawl through air ducts. You can crawl through sewers. Uh, the level design is really quite complex, and uh, we'll get into the uh, technical allowances, the technical reasons for, uh, for that in a little bit. So, of course, Duke has access to some fun weapons. So there's the old standbys of, uh, of FPS games, the pistol, the shotgun, the chain gun, and uh, the RPG launcher, which is the Duke Nukem version of the standard rocket launcher. Unique to Duke 3D, though, are things like shrink rays, laser mines, pipe bombs, and a rapid-fire rocket launcher. Also, Duke can get his hands on some other fun items like scuba gear to extend, spend some extended time underwater, uh, a jetpack, which helps you get to, uh, to secret areas, night vision goggles, steroids to give a temporary burst of speed, and a hollow Duke, which projects, which projects a holographic decoy for enemies to attack. Of course, another big aspect, huge aspect, in fact, of Duke Nukem 3D gameplay was multiplayer. Like Doom, Duke 3D came out right kind of at the inception of internet gameplay, so the game did not natively support the TCP IP networking stack, only the more limited IPX protocol. So utilities like Kali and services like Ten and Dwango supported the game. If you want to know more about Kali and Dwango and Ten, go back, listen to the Doom episode. I talk all about them in there. Of course, all the game's levels were available for deathmatch play. Uh, there were also some uh, multiplayer-only maps, and a level editor also allowed the creation of user levels. So not only was there a deathmatch, or duke match, as they called it, but uh, there were also options for co-op play and duke tag, which was kind of a capture-the-flag style, uh, style of game type. Game over. So one thing I haven't really talked about yet is humor. You may have been hearing, uh, you know, you've been hearing kind of some little snippets of, uh, of Duke clips throughout, so you may have a little bit of an idea of it. So the first two Duke games certainly didn't take themselves very seriously. In Duke Nukem 1, Duke talks about how he wants to get home in time for Oprah. In Duke 2, he's plugging his autobiography called Why I'm So Great. Duke 3D takes this silliness and parody to the next level. The game is rife with pop culture references. I mean, just look at the box art. The total ripoff, or maybe it's an homage to uh, to Army of Darkness with Duke as Ash. Uh, there's a hidden passage behind a poster, like in the Shawshank Redemption. You can find a smash T-800 from Terminator. Uh, Duke Nukem himself is a play on Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, you could find uh, the, uh, the Space Marine from Doom dead on the ground. You can find Luke Skywalker dead on the ground. Uh, you can even, you can find the obelisk from 2001, a space odyssey. If you poke around on the moon, I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. There's, there's a lot to see 
in uh, in the world. Duke is voiced by John St. John, uh, who, when asked how he came up with Duke's voice, basically describes it as Clint Eastwood's voice, but lower. On top of being funny, which was sort of already a hallmark of previous Duke games, Duke 3D was also quite racy, controversially racy, in fact. Uh, the game has you running and gunning through uh, through strip clubs, porn shops, all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, in the club, you can interact with the strippers. You can give them money for a full frontal flash while saying "shake it, baby," which sadly I don't have a. I didn't get a chance to get an audio clip of. Uh, of course, the strippers are not bulletproof and uh, and will die if they're hit with stray bullets. In addition, the whole plot surrounding captured women results in Dukes killing them after they beg him to end their suffering. We'll talk a little bit more about the reaction to that in, or the reaction to that in a little bit. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, so while I kind of merged the Duke 1 and 2 uh, dev stories, Duke 3D certainly deserves one all its own. For the bulk of its development cycle, the Duke Nukem 3D team consisted of 8 people. Uh, As it neared release, however, the team increased to 12 or 13. The project was headed by George Broussard, Ellen H. Bloom III, and Todd Replodge. Scott Miller had moved out of the day-to-day design and development, and uh, he was kind of more focusing full-time on the business aspects of the company. Uh, music was split between Bobby Prince and Lee Jackson, with the somewhat iconic grab bag title music being done by Jackson. So here is the Duke Nukem theme called Grab Bag. That that's just it's such an awesome theme. I love it. Uh, so Duke Nukem 3D was built on the Build game engine. Uh, the engine was created by Ken Silverman. He started work on Build back in 1993 while he was on contract with Apogee. Uh, this was before, right before his first semester at Brown University. Uh, Build is a really great engine that uh, that built, I guess we could say, uh, on the features provided in John Carmack's Doom engine. In fact, for a time, Silverman was kind of considered Carmack's main rival for programming wizardry. So much like the Doom engine, the Build engine represents the world on a 2D grid. Uh, The grid is separated into a series of closed shapes called sectors. In Doom, sectors were fixed at load time. Once a sector was created, it could not be changed. This meant the world was very static. The Build engine allowed sectors to be manipulated in real time creating options for a destructible world. 
Uh, this was used extensively in Blood, a game that released the year after Duke 3D, but at certain points in Duke 3D, walls would explode out, windows would shatter, and all kinds of other stuff like that. So while Duke's world wasn't totally destructible, it certainly was much more dynamic than Doom's was. In fact, the Doom engine was limited to uh, things like doors opening and closing by sliding up and down, or a single panel moving in reaction to a player throwing a switch. The build engine allowed for very complex chain scripting of object events, which could be synchronized with, uh, with other things like sound. This allowed for the creation of amazing effects like earthquakes, collapsing buildings, as I just said, exploding walls, even a subway moving around a track on a schedule. Other cool options within the engine were uh, inclusion of objects known as sector effectors. Now, these effectors had special characteristics. As an example, a sector effector, looking like a hole in the floor, would actually just teleport the player to a different sector of the map. What it looked like was the player falling through a hole into a different area underneath the area you are in, when in reality, I mean, that couldn't really happen based on the 2D mapping system. So what really happened is that you just kind of get teleported off somewhere on the other side of the map. Uh, these effectors, again, made for more dynamic, varied, and fast-paced gameplay. And there's lots more I can say about the engine, but suffice it to say, it was very complete. And while it did power some other games before Duke 3D, Duke 3D is the game that really put the build engine on the map. Terminated. Duke Nukem 3D was an incredible success. The most popular Apogee 3D Realms game that had ever been released. It sold 3.5 million copies. It's been ported to many platforms, re-released in different versions, moved to consoles from the Sega Genesis to the Xbox 360 to iOS. All this despite or maybe supported by the controversy from religious and women's groups coming out against its portrayal of women, extreme violence, and disrespect of religion. Of course, since Duke 3D was so immensely popular, a sequel was soon announced. In 1997, Duke Nukem Forever was announced. Like we saw with Strike Commander, the game's development schedule went a little bit haywire. Across 1997 and 1998, various release dates were promised and missed. In 2001, 3D Realms stated the game would be done when it was done. Nothing else was heard until December of 2007, when a teaser trailer was released. So this is 10 years after the initial announcement of the game, we got a teaser trailer, then nothing again. In May 2009, 3D Realms downsized and laid off the Duke Nukem Forever team. Of course, as many of us know, it wasn't all for naught. In September 2010, one year later, about one year later, 2K Games stated Duke Nukem Forever was under development at Gearbox Software. After 15 years, Duke Nukem Forever released on June 2nd, 2011. Sadly, the game had clunky controls and the long development time really left it feeling like an old and outdated game. Uh, the game that came out of development hell was sorely disappointing. With this in mind, I don't believe we'll have much of a future with the Duke Nukem series, aside from the continuing very vibrant mod community, which exists around Duke Nukem 3D, fan remakes, ports. I mean, Duke Nukem is still almost, I'd say, as popular as ever 
I just don't think we're going to get any official, uh, any more official sequels. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So, where can we get Duke Nukem today? Well, Duke Nukem 1 and 2 are available on GOG.com in a single package for $5.99 USD. Duke 3D is available both on GOG in the Atomic Edition and Steam in the, I believe it's the Meltdown Edition or something like that. Basically, these are uh, the first three episodes along with the fourth episode, which is an expansion and uh, a couple of other things. Duke Nukem Forever if you want to give it a whirl, is also available on Steam. I believe it costs $20. I'm tempted to, uh, to pick it up on a, on a sale just to, uh, to give it a whirl. Now, one game I didn't mention is a spinoff called Duke Nukem Manhattan Project. Uh, this was a platformer released in 2002 by 3D Realms. It's sort of an homage to Duke 1 and 2 with, with more modern graphics. I haven't played it, but, uh, but it reviews quite well, and it's a $5.99 as well on G-O-G. Damn, you're ugly. Okay, on to the rest of this week's emails before we get to the uh, the final analysis. First, we have an email from Jessica. She writes, I really enjoyed the podcast about Dungeon Keeper, and I will definitely end up picking up the uh, second game and War for the Overworld soon. I've never played any of the side-scrolling Dukes, but uh, I have a little experience with Duke Nukem 3D. I've only played through the main game maybe one time unmodded. Like many others, I enjoyed Duke's personality and the uniquely interactive levels. The thing I loved the most, though, is its modability and unofficial add-ons, which are still being created by modders to this day. Jessica, P.S. Battle Chess, Nuff Said. Thank you, Jessica. Battle Chess has been added to my list. I it totally I totally spaced on it, didn't even think of it until, uh, until I read that. But yes, Battle Chess is definitely going on to... Uh, the list. Now, I, I know I did mention it a little bit in passing, but yes, there is a very, very vibrant and uh, and still st- going strong mod community uh, all around Duke Nukem 3D. Um, there's things like, um, they've added things like high resolution patches, things that make the, uh, the th- patches that make the, the, three, the 2D sprites sitting in the, uh, in the 3D environment, they, converting them into full 3D models, upgrades to make it run on a better version of the build engine, all kinds of stuff. And obviously kind of the old standbys of, you know, replacing, uh, replacing the characters with other things and changing the gameplay and, and all that kind of stuff. So, so really, really great. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Next, a message from Andreas. He writes, hi, Joe. Duke Nukem 3D, where do I even begin? This game has been such a huge part of my childhood that I feel I don't just want to write an email about it, I want to do the damn show. I didn't have a good PC for the longest time, and ever since I played the NES port of Doom, I was hooked on the FPS genre. Uh, I'd often go to the game store and hold these beautiful big PC boxes in my hands. Duke 3D, Blood, Shadow Warrior, Quake, Unreal, Turok, I craved these games. Finally, after a lot of nagging from me, my parents bought a Pentium 2 266. Unreal was out by the time, by this time, and I had a lot of catching up to do. The first game I got was the Duke Nukem Kill a Ton Collection, and I still have it today in mint condition. My mom asked once if she could throw the box away, and you could probably hear my no all the way over there in Canada. I was 13 at the time, and of course I wanted Duke for the boobies, but I also really loved its locations. Up until Doom, 
I was kind of used to games taking place in environments that could never exist in real life. Uh, Duke actually looked really new and refreshing with city streets, bars, and toilets making up the scenery. I could go on for hours, but what I remember most fondly about the game is my own imagination. Me and my friends would often ignore the game's storyline, which wasn't very good to begin with, and make up our own absurd jokes. Our favorite that we still reference all the time today was uh, was one in the death row level where you start off in a prison cell. We rounded up every single enemy in the entire level and locked them together in the cell. It feels a bit silly to write about in an email today, but to us back then, it was freaking hilarious. This mail is already way too long and there's so much more to say. I'm right now violently beating my hands to stop them from typing. I will just conclude that I also love the story of Ken Silverman and how he created the build engine. I'm sure you'll do a good job of covering it, and if you forget anything, I'll write about it in my next email. Thank you, Andreas. I hope, I'm sure I forgot a lot of stuff, because uh, I only like to talk for about an hour. There's there's a lot to say. I'm sure I could do a podcast or two just on the build engine, and uh, just on Ken Silverman and all the the stuff that, that, uh, that he did, and all the different iterations, because obviously um, there was a base build engine that Duke 3D was built on, and then... Uh, the Duke 3D code base became uh, the basis for some follow-on games, and then the build engine was later um, up, blah, 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 sorry, updated to um, to use full 3D models and all kinds of stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, I'm certain I forgot things. Please feel free if there's anything you think is 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 interesting that I left out to to let us all know. I love that. This is the part of the show I really love is that getting really into the little nitty gritty of of the technical implementations of things and issues that they had, why the engines ended up being the way they were, how they got around the limitations of hardware and memory and graphics processing and, and all that stuff. Uh, it's really great. And I know both you and Jessica kind of mentioned it. You know, the world is the world of Duke Nukem is cool in that it's, it's just the world. I mean, yes, it's kind of the future and there's monsters and aliens, but you're in real places unless you're on the moon. But when you're on earth, you're in kind of real places. You're on the street, you're in a bar and uh, everything in the world is is basically usable. If you walk into the bathroom, you can drink out of the sink. You can pee in the toilet because that's Duke Nukem for you. Uh, you know, you can click the cash register. You can do all kinds of stuff. If there's something in the world, it's most likely interactable. You know, I know uh, in one early level, there's a pinball machine. And if you go up to it, uh, Duke kind of doesn't let you play and kind of says, oh, I don't have time to play with myself because, you know, it's Duke Nukem. And he's a funny guy. So thank you, Andreas. Finally, we have a message from Elima. She writes, Hello, Joe and fellow blockers. Ah, Duke Nukem, Duke Nukem. Where do I start? At the beginning, I guess, with the first game released in 1991. I have very few memories of that, aside from it being a 2D platformer I enjoyed well enough. Memories of it blur into those of Duke Nukem 2, which was pretty much more of the same. But in our house... We mostly enjoyed whatever came out of Apogee Software anyhow, Wacky Wheels chiefly amongst them. Then Duke Nukem 3D came along, and everything changed. It was in 3D. My sister and I barely touched the single-player campaign, aside from the first three levels called Hollywood Holocaust, Red Light District, and Death Row. Unbelievable, I still remember that. What we really enjoyed in our household was playing death matches and blowing each other up, perhaps even using the shrink ray so we could squish each other like tiny bugs. Those gaming sessions usually filled the house with gleeful laughter and cries of defeat. At the time, we didn't pay much attention to all the sexist and vulgar contents. At the time, we didn't pay much attention to all the sexist and vulgar contents. 
Women had no agency whatsoever and were no more than either strippers you could tip or captured prisoners who asked for death. Although I didn't give it a second thought at the time, and that alone bugs me, it's something that rubs me the wrong way today, not to get controversial or anything. An interesting element in the game was the map builder. 3D Realms released a map editor, and I remember my father recreating his workplace. Well, part of it. There was a huge atrium with fountains, and his work on this map we used for deathmatches led to a sort of inside joke whenever we went to visit him. Want to go for a swim and get the atomic health? One of us would say. Just a sec, let me go grab the jetpack behind the security desk. To this day, I can't see the building and not think of the Duke Nukem 3D map. Anyhow, looking forward to the episode and hearing more about Duke Nukem and what I might have missed or not remember. Emily slash Elima. P.S. How about trying out a game with a female character next time? I suggest Jill of the Jungle. Well, thank you so much. Again, Jill of the Jungle added to the list. Again, a game that I, I forgot about. And, you know, it's interesting. Games with female characters and 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 all that is... I really want to go back and do some research and and, and see, you know, how many games... I, I know I talked about King's Quest and those games kind of kicked off having female characters. Then obviously we jump up to Tomb Raider and, and Lara Croft and all that. But I, I want to try and seek out or maybe you guys can send me some suggestions of other games that aside from, you know, the, the later uh, mid to later King's Quest and Jill of the Jungle and Tomb Raider that that had female protagonists because obviously it's it's known that that's not something that's uh, super common in uh in the gaming industry of the past. And uh you know Emily not not controversial at all. I I think it's it's good that that you brought up kind of the uh the objectification a little bit of of women in the game and again same thing with me when this game came out I was like a 12 or 13 year old 14 year old boy. 1996 yeah something like that and you know again it was like andrea said oh my god it's a game where i can see boobs and my parents don't know about it and you know that's what you go for and again yeah i did obviously didn't think about it at the time being a horny boy but um you know looking back on it now yeah i mean it, it doesn't necessarily rub you the right way and uh i i frankly think that that's one of the issues aside from the fact that the gameplay was clunky and the game's a little bit boring as to why uh, Duke Nukem Forever wasn't really all that popular, because it's it's just it's rife with that kind of stuff. It's rife with you know girls in little skirts having sex with Duke or looking like they're having sex with Duke or talking about how awesome Duke is and blah blah blah. And frankly, I just think that doesn't really hold up anymore. That kind of really juvenile, misogynistic kind of humor. That maybe we're a little bit past that. I don't know. Maybe I watch too much Star Trek and I think too much of the human race. But um, but yeah, that's that. Thank you for that. Thank you, everyone, for those emails. So big question of the show. Does Duke Nukem hold up today? Well, you got it a little bit just before, but I will say yes and no. Duke Nukem 1 is very very old the graphics are not very good the controls are very very clunky and i think platformers of that generation are just way too simplistic to entertain gamers today unless you have very nostalgic memories of the first game it is more frustrating than it is entertaining duke nukem 2 is a bit better there's more flexibility and fluidity of the controls but it's still an old school platformer with no incredibly compelling gameplay it's just okay Duke 3D, on the other hand, is still quite entertaining. 
The world, while still not as nice as modern first-person shooters' worlds would be, is very dynamic. Almost everything in the world is interactable. Like I said, you come across a water fountain you can drink. You come across a toilet you can pee. If Duke can't use something, he'll make a snarky comment. The gameplay is fast-paced. It's fun. Uh, Sadly, like with Wolfenstein 3D, after about 30 minutes of gameplay, I started getting a little bit motion sick. Uh, While the gameplay of Duke 3D holds up, I kind of feel, as I said, you know, just about a minute ago, I kind of feel like the humor doesn't. It's fine for a while, but, you know, ultra-cocky Duke spouting one-liners gets a little bit old. Maybe I'm just older than I was, but I can't say I love the depiction of women in the game. The whole premise of the game is something just kind of out of time, and I just don't love it anymore. But if you can get past the morality stuff, there's a fun and funny game under here that is still quite entertaining, at least, uh, you know, for little spurts of time here and there. This isn't a game you're going to play for 40 hours. It's a game you'll play for an hour here, maybe come back in a little while when you're bored next week and play another hour, something like that. When it comes to Duke Nukem Forever, I'll be honest, I haven't played it, so I can't say anything aside from what the reviews said. If it goes on sale, I may pick it up. It's possible because of just because of the reputation the game garnered over the years that there was no game that could have satisfied people. I mean, we were waiting Duke Nukem Forever won. I I think it invented vaporware awards. It was one of those games that was just never going to come out and finally it did and it just like it was built up so much and frankly I don't know what it could have done to to be good. I watched a let's play of it and the bulk of the time the guy who was playing was just kind of walking from place to place, getting lost, watching cutscenes. There wasn't a ton of game there to play as far as I could see, but I haven't played it myself, so you can't take my word on that one. If anyone has any specific uh, review of Duke Nukem Forever, drop me a line, send me a voicemail, send me an email. Um, I want to know. Hail to the king, baby. So before I end the show, uh, I thought I'd... I'd present you guys with a small contest. A few weeks back, I picked up an extra copy of the Retro Game Music Bundle featuring quite a bit of music. Uh, I think three or four actually separate albums. No, three al- three albums from Duke Nukem. So you got the Duke Nukem 2 soundtrack, the Duke Nukem 3D soundtrack, and a bunch of Duke Nukem 3D remixes. Uh, it's got the soundtrack from Myst, the soundtrack from Jazz Jackrabbit, Seventh Guest, uh, and quite a few other games, uh, Nimble Quest, which is an iOS game, and uh, and quite a few others. It's 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 quite a lot of music. Uh, so if you're interested in getting your hands on uh, a copy of the Retro Game Music Bundle, just drop me an email, podcast at umbcast.com. In the subject line, just put Music Bundle Contest. It's as simple as that. I'll keep the contest going for uh, this show and the next show. So that'll be two weeks and two weeks. So that'll be a whole month for you guys to get your emails in uh, two shows from now I guess the show after the month is complete if you want to call it that I will randomly select a winner and I will send you uh, the download link for the retro game music bundle which is really awesome that was the scene in California's Mojave Desert five years ago our historic first view of the newcomer's ship Theirs was a slave ship carrying a quarter million beings bred to adapt and labor in any environment. But they've washed ashore on Earth with no way to get back to where they came from. And in the last five years, the newcomers have become the latest addition to the population of Los Angeles. Alienation, the newcomers podcast, is a fan cast devoted to the groundbreaking but short-lived TV series Alien Nation. 
This series tackles social issues like racism, bigotry, and intolerance with an alien twist. Each month, we will bring you a podcast dedicated to a single episode. The host will give you their thoughts on the episode, as well as some little-known behind-the-scenes information. So please subscribe to Alienation, the newcomer's podcast on iTunes, or visit our website at alienationpodcast.com. So that's it. I'm glad to have covered this very interesting series this week. Thanks, of course, to everyone for listening. And of course, special thanks to everyone that emailed in this week. Uh, Next time, I'm going to cover an interesting game I had a lot of fun with back in the day. And uh, I don't think it was quite as popular as as I think it might have been. The 1998 Activision game, Interstate 76. So as always, send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him, as always, over at moyermultimedia.com. You can check out the show notes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. We've got a lot of fun stuff there. We post news, we post deals, all kinds of fun stuff like that. You can follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. Me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Stream us live at Stitcher Radio. And that's that. And we will see you next time for Interstate 76 here in the Upper Memory Block. information on the podcast visit umbcast.com that's umbcast.com write to joe today at podcast at umbcast.com that's podcast at umbcast.com so what shall it be do you join the unity or do you die here join